I'm June Reith and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This is the third and final part of our series on designs for the Pluriverse. If you didn't catch the first part of this series, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back to and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show. it starts to get interesting with like becoming human by design which is actually mm-hmm. more, more about becoming post-human by design um, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more forward-looking in a kind of interesting way um, yes he's quoting this guy Fry um, and there's there's some interesting stuff that falls out here right that like yeah Fr- Fry is kind of suggesting kind of going from um, from enlightenment to sustainment um, as a kind of prefigurative practice and like this kind of sustainment is not just, it's different from sustainability because like, it's not just getting rid of the unsustainable practices, it's like creating different and more, um, at a whole framework around sustainment instead of just saying, oh, this particular thing we do isn't sustainable, let's cut it. Um, but there are some interesting remarks around like, um, I think Fry at some point says that we're kind of stuck with a lot of this stuff and we just have to make the best of the situation and find our way out through the thing, um, which is which is pretty sweet. Um, yeah, uh, the, I think uh, it might be this section here. Um, uh, we are thrown into these defuturing conditions as the future is sacrificed to the hollow gains of the present. The continuity of this relation is at the heart of sustainment. The conceptual and practical project beyond the enlightenment, modernity, globalization, uh, sorry, globalism and sustainability, which so often sustains the unsustainable, be it industries, waves of life, products, uh, institutions, built environments, voters of agriculture, and more. All of this adds up to the making of a world of being and difference. A post-human world, again, in its difference, is demanded wherein the human is not abandoned, but rather becomes in tune with the being of sustainment and so becomes a futural agent. Um, so it's like, you know, we can't, uh, we, we like, you know, it's that idea of thrownness, right? Which is um, a Heidegger term again, um, uh, where like, yeah, we're just in the world. Like we can't, we can't uh, sort of like reboot the system and run everything from the start again, right? Like that's just not the situation. Uh, so we have to chart a course uh, in the world we actually live in rather than, uh, you know, in a purely hypothetical one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a little bit further up, there's a, a quite a nice thing that like... Um, is he quoting Fry here? Or I think he's paraphrasing, but um, it goes that, simply put, if it is certain humans who are causing unsustainability, we have to redesign the human, which is a pretty radical call to a, a post-humanism. No, which is like, you know, uh, a valid point. <laughs> it will eventually end up being a, because um, I think this will get tied in a little bit later somewhere, but it's kind of, the post-humanism that we're kind of after there is a... Um, a kind of loving and humanist post post-humanism, right? Like it's kind of fused with that Martirana and Ferreira's biology of love stuff. Um, so it's not the kind of Landian, like machine acceleration post-humanism. Um, 
but it's it's a pretty powerful kind of like statement that like hey yeah I mean if this if this whole if if this whole if this shit just isn't working we're just gonna have to redesign it like and it almost kind of calls to mind the uh, the xenofeminist stuff of like if nature is unjust we should change nature and if if the human is unjust we should change the human. <laughs> Like Haraway is cited like sort of here and there yeah, uh, in this true. book, um, although uh, yeah, not uh, not really like as prominent a, a figure as like Heidegger or Maturana and Varela. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess there's also a remark that like at this point we can't afford to wait for evolution. Yeah, obviously not. <laughs> we need the artificial. Which is so interesting because, like, so much of the book is kind of, although it's about design, it's quite against artifice in some ways. But yes, yes, there is this yes. thing here that, like, hey, we're we're fucking stuck with this shit. Like, we're gonna have to just do a big load of artifice um, to 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 get this this stuff done, you know. Um, and that's that's where design comes back in. We're talking about like a deliberate project of redesigning what we are and how we live. It's. Um, it's maybe even like reminiscent of like the culture, where it's um it's kind of early prehistory or whatever was a like deliberate process of mutual co-design between the organic beings of the culture and their their AI like machinery. Yes. And a design of their language, like a, a, a recursive redesigning of themselves over time. That's how the culture gets started. Um yeah, yeah. It's it's some good stuff, you know. A section on ontological design and the question of agency, in which we get this, um, I guess, stuff that's familiar to us from our cybernetics readings of like distributed agency, kind of unsettling these notions of like the individual is the only kind of agent that exists. Um, yes, like the uh, the professional genius who like changes the world, right? Um, that very like modern notion of design, um, replacing that with this kind of like distributed notion. Mm -hmm. We have a section called non dualism in everyday life, a various question, where it all kind of starts to get into like how to do this non duality. Uh, how to actually enact it. Um, is this when we get into this like weird Macy stuff with like the great turning and the, there's some really bong rip weird shit that comes along later here. Yeah, this is the Macy stuff. That, that shit was fucking crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> this epochal shift, a great turning, demands a profound change in our perception of reality, including surrendering our belief in a separate self and adopting an ecological self abandoning anthropocentrism in favor of a life-centered paradigm, acknowledging the dependent co-arising of all things, including the knower and the known, body and mind, fostering structural changes at the level of economic systems and technology, and cultivating shifts in consciousness through various means such as non-dualist spiritualities. Only then can one hope to be in league with the beings of the future, a concept that speaks to the concerns of sustainability. Um, I mean, it's it's all pretty unobjectionable. It's just like... I guess, like speaking it in capital G, capital T, great turning is a. Uh, uh, sounds very like Age of Aquarius shit. That's exactly it, right? Like, so it's it's again the the content is not exactly objectionable, but it just has this. It has that like you know hippie kind of Age of Aquarius stuff, but it also just has this like time cube kind of vibe to it, you know? <laughs> yes, the great turning is upon us. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I just have to chuckle at some of some of the stuff, even even though it's like I don't know. It's 
don't, I don't exactly object, but um, I guess I guess I do object in some ways to the the emphasis on the like spiritual first kind of angle to it. That like it, it again, like I think uh, capitalist modernity, I think, can probably adapt and absorb basically anything from a purely cultural or purely like spiritual angle, but. Um, so I, I I just have doubts about the viability of like a spirit first kind of project, uh, even though I think our, our kind of Marxoberian revolutionary current will need a kind of uh, spiritual reassessment of just our, our way of thinking about the world and our way of paying attention to the world at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's necessary, but also can be recu- like recuperated. Right. Like it's like I mean, like the age of Aquarius stuff, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, is it necessary for us to have a profound shift in the way that we uh, perceive and interact with the world in order to, like, you know, avoid the extinction of all life on Earth? Uh, yeah, of course it is. Uh, but like it's also possible to like sort of like compartmentalize that awareness in a way that is like, yeah, recuperated and commoditized. Right. Um, we've seen that so, so so many times. Mm-hmm. It also like just has that. Um, it's also like the stuff we I think we read in Vital Cells with the um, the very like individualized way of the kind of I guess new left or post left sort of way of dealing with this kind of stuff where it's like oh if if we all just had a revolution in ourselves simultaneously then there there would be a revolution by default you know um, if we all just changed our consciousness then we wouldn't even need to do a to do a revolution that sort of stuff and it's like it, it ends up being this very individualized thing yeah if we just if we just listen to enough oasis <laughs> start a revolution in our heads then uh we'd we'd all be we'd all be there everything would be solved um speaking of which there is a section here on music i know it's so weird it's very strange what, what a what a weird little segue like this is so strange um it comes from out of nowhere and like and then disappears into nowhere immediately yeah it's like this is just kind of like i thought this was neat um jazz fusion is cool yeah it's like oh like you know sort of fusion or like world music kind of stuff uh and then um a commitment to a, a place-based musical tradition, but at the same time, an opening up of that tradition more than ever to conversations with other world musics and the use of a panoply of digital and non-conventional production techniques to achieve the best possible rhythms and sounds. The results are some, oftentimes unique and original, powerful in the ways in which they engage people's bodies and consciousness, perhaps confirming Jack Attale's contention that music, more than theory, heralds the new cultural and political orders to come. Does this prophetic function of music suggest, at the very least, that some artistic practices such as music might be more tuned to relational being? Can contemporary fusions be considered in any way to be effectively inter-epistemic and pluriversal? And if so, a source of inspiration for the type of novel collaborative design practices envisioned by design thinkers such as Ezio Manzini? Are musicians engaging in ontological politics when they collaborate in the making of a cross-world's music? Do contemporary musics of a certain kind open up new possibilities for being in sound? Uh, it's like, like, yeah, like probably, but not to the degree that you're suggesting here. You know what this really reminds me of? Because it's got like shit like sonic transculturation and shit like that in quotes. This is the kind of shit you get from the CCRU. 
You know, the like when <laughs> yeah. when drum and bass music was somehow the fucking like imminent horizon of uh, capitalist techno science, like lift off service. <laughs> Nick Ladd, like high off of his ass, just like flopping around on the ground in the middle of the conference. <laughs> He's just with a shitty fucking drum and bass track behind it. And, like, it just, it just has this so overstated kind of, like, grandiosity and, like, um, you know, the, the, like, subterranean rhythms echoed through, you know, the fucking cash nexus or whatever. <laughs> like, fucking hell. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like, you could say, like, okay, like, you know, there's a connection between, like, say rock and roll and political change or jazz and political change or uh hip-hop and political change right um and like that's a valid statement but like also like clearly it's not like oh therefore this is like so incredibly transcendental that's just going to shatter the entire modern way of being i know it's it's so weird and it's so weird that those those things just have continuous fucking afterlives, right? Like, I mean, even this year, like last year, you had all that, like, what the fuck was it? It was, it was people who were reading that, like, unfinished Mark Fisher thing of, like, acid communism or whatever, and were suddenly like, hey, if we all go out clubbing, maybe we'll have communism again. It's like, this is like the sixth, the sixth or seventh fucking rerun of this concept, you know? The 90s are back, baby. It's the rave scene. The rave scene's back. So therefore, Mark Fisher's bong riff speculations are also valid again. That, that, that kind of thing just has a continuous afterlife, doesn't it? It, it? it keeps coming up again and again. Well, I mean, like, there's a kind of uh, collective euphoria to being in a, like, hot music scene that is quite infectious and i can understand why people want this to be true <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it happened with punk you know it, ha- it happened with all the little fucking eras of punk you know yeah 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 i guess it's just a, it's a life cycle thing that people go through that when when you're 21 and you're involved in like i don't know the heavy metal scene in fucking some town or whatever it all feels like the most important thing in the world but then by the time you're hitting 30 you're kind of cooling out of it a little and Maybe maybe looking back, it wasn't as revolutionary as it might have felt, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, it's, it's not that it isn't important or deeply affects people. It's just that it's not sufficient to shatter the contemporary capitalist order, obviously. Um, a, a rave isn't going to take down the, wa- the wage relation. Um, no, exactly. <laughs> I would like it to, but mm, probably not. Um Let's see what we what else we have here about ontological design. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is just repeating things, like nothing new there. And then there's this as a way of concluding. Um, so the, it says, uh, the following are some features of the ontological approach to design as a way to conclude this chapter. The list is purposely elaborated on the basis of the works presented in the chapter, ontologically oriented design, one, recognizes that all design creates a world within the world in which we are designed by what we design as subjects. We are all designers and we are all designed. Two, is a strategy for transitions from enlightenment, therefore unsustainability, defuturing, deworlding, destruction, to sustainment, futuring, reworlding, creation. It embraces ontologically futuring practices, particularly those involving the bringing into being of relational worlds and humans. Three, 
avoids defuturing into objects and reveals technology's contribution to unsustainability. It brings together imagination and technology ontologically, and it tackles head-on the anthropogenesis of technicity. Four, is post-subject and post-object. It goes beyond the techno-rationalism of the self, user, author, as intrinsically existing. It challenges the hegemonic category of the human while striving for a post-human practice by raising the question of civilizational transitions. What are we on now? One, two, three, four, five. Uh, is not about straightforward fabrication, but about modes of revealing. It considers retrieving modes, uh, forms of making that are not merely technological while embracing new creations. It may do so by looking at the entire range of design trans traditions within the West and beyond, non-Eurocentrically and decolonially. And six is not about expanding the range of choices that is liberal freedom, but is intended to transform the kinds of beings we desire to be. In this sense, it is potentially non-capitalist or post-capitalist and non-liberal. Uh, seven, builds on life and the Earth's imminent capacity for self-organization. It tackles head-on the question of artificiality, but does so while being mindful of the complex webs of life that make up the pluriverse. And eight, it provokes convivial and communal instrumentations involving human slash non-human collectives provoked into existence by ecological breakdowns or shared experiences of harm. It imagines designs that take seriously the active powers issuing from non-humans, and it builds on the positive ontology of vibrant matter, realizing that design situations always involve encounters between human and non-human actants of all kinds. Nine, it involves the design of domains in which desired actions are generated and interpreted. It explicitly contributes to creating the languages that create the worlds in which people operate. In the creation of domains of conversations for action, it necessarily moves from design to experience and back through, say, prototyping and scenario analysis. It inquires about the extent to which the creation of new designs enables better domains of interpretation and action to emerge without overlooking power dynamics. 10, it always entails reconnection with non-humans, with things in their thinghood, with the earth or earthwise, earthwise connections, with spirit, and of course, with humans in their radical alterity, decolonially, considering the inclusion of multiple worlds rather than exclusion. It continues to dismantling dualisms and takes seriously all forms of non-dualist existence. At its best, it discerns paths to greater mindfulness and enables ontologies of compassion and care. And 11... Uh, all design is for inactive use, not involving just users, produces operational effectiveness, but not narrowly defined utility, fosters the autopoiesis of living entities and heterogeneous assemblages of life, and is mindful of living in the pluriverse. And those are the 11 principles of ontological design. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're all pretty solid design principles. I mean, like, I don't have any objection to any of these. Um... So, you know, good good points there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thumbs up. Um, yeah, I have no objections. Um, let's see, what's the next chapter? Um, chapter 5, Design for Transitions. Um, this gets pretty interesting, right? And like an, a big chunk of the early part of the chapter is about the various discourses of transition. Um, in very broad strokes, you have in the Global North, you have discourses of degrowth. And in the Global South, you have discourses of post-development. 
um, very different kinds of emphasis placed there. Um, and I guess in many ways, like from, from the Southern perspective, uh, like degrowth and its kind of, um, uh, like concerns seem kind of laughable, <laughs> like, and it's, <laughs> it's like, well, what do you, what do you mean degrowth, <laughs> motherfucker, you know? And also like that, um, the kind of thing that people of the global South have been subjected to is like the development regime coming from the North. So getting past that is more salient. Like what comes after all this horrible developmentalist shit? Um, also maybe we would like some electricity instead of like entertaining how to use less of it, you know? Yes, yes, yes. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, definitely valuable in the extent to which like, you know, degrowth perspectives can be, uh, like they can really sort of succumb to commodity fetishism in the sense that like they don't really take into account like the economic system as like a world system and and just kind of like are like oh yeah well but like there's these countries that need to degrow and that's our main focus and not all of the other ones where all the resources come from (laughs) and all the production happens of all these things that we need to get rid of yeah I think I think at some point along the way it's kind of like, um, yeah these these are these are both complementary sort of perspectives right that like it's it's definitely they're they shouldn't be speaking past each other um, in hopefully right that like it's just that like we definitely shouldn't be exporting the degrowth mindset to people for whom it just isn't relevant you know like growth was never the thing um, yes yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like, well, you know, that was kind of like a misdiagnosis of the problem in the first place. So, like, reversing the process that didn't really correctly identify the problem isn't what we're about here. Yeah, totally. Um, The, uh, yeah, so I guess the stuff on post-development, we start to get into, like, um, the, like, rights of nature, uh, bon vivir and civilizational transitions. Um, these are the kind of perspectives from the South, um, which like a lot of it's pretty pretty good stuff, right? Like um, it's like good, good living and the rights of nature. Um, yeah, two thumbs up to both of those. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like transitions, studies, that kind of stuff is all things that I was like exposed to starting my PhD in uh, Utrecht um, because like, it's very connected into like sustainability discourse and, and uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of it sort of feels like ways to talk about revolution without talking about revolution. Yeah. That's the thing, right? But um, there are definitely like useful and interesting things in there as well that aren't just that. So that, that definitely struck me, right? That like, yeah, it, it, it has all that kind of stuff of like, okay, cool. Everything you're talking about is great, but like, what's your plan for doing any of this without a revolution? And like, I don't say this very often. In fact, never. But when I was reading this, I was thinking, God, they could really do with a bit of Maoism, you know? <laughs> you know, to just like inject some revolutionary fever into it and like get to a direct confrontation with like the actual problem, you know? Um, and if, 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 if that's where my thoughts go, then like, you know, you, you got to know there's a problem there. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it, I mean, I don't think it's a fatal flaw or anything. It's just kind of like, 
Yeah, like I think that you just using the term revolution as a substitute for transitions or vice versa, like isn't really adequate. Yeah, like definitely if if transitions researchers like were to use the term revolution just a little bit, sometimes it might help get their point across a bit better, I think. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, especially when we're kind of de talking about this ecological stuff, right? Because um, um, there was a really interesting uh, point that I think Arnold raised. Uh, I think it was in a tweet that, like, when when we do this, when when scientists, like when climate scientists, do this thing where they kind of round everything down and sort of say that, like, oh, we need we need these huge transformations, but they just don't they don't like actually say it all the way. They're they're on the spectrum of climate denial at that point, right? Like it's yes, yes, yes. De denial is a spectrum. It's not a kind of binary thing. And like if you're if you're min if you're mincing words in that kind of way, or if you're like trying to talk about revolution without actually saying the word, you're kind of in that kind of zone of like not exactly helping. You know, it's like it's basically denialism of a of a sort. Um, which I thought was an interesting kind of point, and I think it applies to some of this kind of stuff here, you know? Um, there's a lot of stuff here then that's like, um, like transitions as like emergence, like the kind of patchwork emergence of new worlds, uh, which I quite liked. Um, and then it's, it's a, it's a bottom-up process, which then does lead the author to reflect, um, uh, or is it here that this happens? Oh yeah, it is, like, where it's like, okay, if it's emergent, then is design even really relevant, you know? In in what sense in what sense is the design profession or design in general happening if if often I don't know, it could it could be like a backward rationalization of a, a thing that emerged, you know? Um it's an interesting thing for him to remark on at the very minimum, right? That like, eh, there's there's an ambivalence there. Like it's um because there, there's definitely a part of this book that's like um a way for the design profession to rationalize their involvement in the apocalypse, you know, <laughs> or, that, or that that they'll have a they'll have a role during the apocalypse, and it's also but it's also quite possible that if if this wonderful new world actually does manage to emerge from the ashes, that design won't have actually been a part of the process at all, you know, in 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 a kind of deliberative sense, it'll have been a, a more of an emergent bottom up process. Yeah, I mean, but I I think that just kind of gets back to like you know, like cybernetics is steering, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of the point. Um, if you're taking up design in the sense of like, oh yeah, I am like implicated in my context. It constitutes me. I constitute it. Like design is never going to be that thing of like that, like Cartesian divide between the, uh, genius of the subject and the world that is worked upon, right? Um, so yeah, I think I think that's all definitely true. It's just it's just very interesting that the the, the author does remark on this as a as a possible problem with the with the with the book, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I know, hundred uh, percent for sure. The uh, the back part of the chapter then is um, looking more carefully at the. Transition Design Framework at CMU, which is, where is that? Where's CMU? Canada Mega University? I, does he ever spell out what the fucking, what the acronym stands for? Let me check. Da -da 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 -da. 
uh, Carnegie Mellon University. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, I don't know. it's it's a it's a nice summary of this kind of thing of like that. This is, um, I guess, design education actually trying to do some of this sort of stuff, like getting longer term horizons on there, um, teaching like actual theories of social change as part of part of design, and. Um, a kind of like living systems focus, right? Um, there's also bits here about like, um, again, for these like transitions, right? Like that like scale scale and recursion are here, that like you have something very like the kind of VSM model of like recursively nested systems doing this adaptive emergent stuff. Um, pretty sweet, you know? Um, good to know that this is being taught somewhere. Um, like I can confirm it is because like this is the kind of thing that we teach in our classrooms too. So. <laughs> Why don't you guys get a mention in this book? You know, um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure actually. <laughs> uh, you're 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 out there on the fringes uh, doing doing the real work. Um, um, there's then a kind of summary of. Um, Manzini's Design When Everybody Designs, uh, under the, the heading of like Design for Social Innovation. Yeah, like ultra collaborative kind of design processes. Um, is there much we can say about that section without getting totally bogged down in the details? Um, oh no, there, there, there was a bit of it I, I liked, right? That um, you kind of sp splits it up on in these like two dimensions of design, right? Like you have diffuse versus expert design, and then problem solving versus sense making. Okay, yep. Mm -hmm. You can kind of you can plot things out there where um, I think the examples used are like some some kinds of cultural activism would be in the diffuse sense making quadrant. And then there would be like I guess techno technocratic like expert led problem solving initiatives in the opposite quadrant. Um, it's a pretty pretty cool way of like looking at the um, the ways that design can go. And I guess the the thing that Manzini is getting at is that we kind of need experts to hand over control to these diffuse collaborative networks instead. Because they'll be... Actually, there's a really cool insight here that's like... Well, it's just a little, little phrase that like pins things down quite well, that like, uh, quote, the more a system is scattered and networked, the larger and more connected is its interface with society, and the more the social side of innovation has to be considered. So it's, it's a very Berean kind of argument for this, like, distributed connected network. Yes. As just having having a richer and more deeply connected, like, interface with the world, and is thus better able to absorb variety. So this whole thing is a variety engineering argument that, like, expert control of design should be handed over to these dis um, distributed networks instead because they'll be better able to carve up the variety equation. Yeah, and then the, the sort of like caveat on top of that is that like you want to have something like a VSM to diagnose whether it's working or not. Right? Yeah, and the, and the recursive nesting. Um, but it's getting in the right direction, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, chapter 6, Autonomous Design and the Politics of Relationality and the Communal. Is this the chapter where we get into like autopoiesis? And, and autonomy. And I think so, yes, yes, yes. And then, so the initial part of the chapter is kind of a quick tour of Maturin and Andrea's like concept of autopoiesis and like biological autonomy. Um, it's just like the self-organization and like the self-production of the organism um, that keeps, keeps itself stable 
and alive in relation to all the other things, in relation to an environment. Um, and then that concept is then transferred over to these like territorial defense struggles, um, like the Zapatistas and a bunch of other kind of examples of communities trying to maintain their adaptive autonomy in relation to an environment, which is pretty good. Um, there's this, I think this is where we finally get the definitions of some terms that have been used throughout the book, uh, autonomy, heteronomy, and autonomy. So autonomy is when norms are established through traditional cultural practices. They are endogenous and place-specific and are modified historically through embedded collective processes. Heteronomy is when norms are established by others via expert knowledge and institutions. They are considered universal, impersonal, and standardized, and are changed through rational deliberation and political negotiation. Then autonomy is when the conditions exist for changing the norms from within, or the ability to change traditions traditionally. It might involve the defense of some practices, the transformation of others, and the invention of new practices. So yeah, um, I think autonomy and heteronomy had come up throughout the book but uh, had not actually been defined. Um, autonomy is pretty good, you know? Um, this is this is where it starts to look a bit brighter, where it's like, okay, like a, an, an autonomous collective would be able to like dynamically alter its traditions. And that, but that sort of mixes things up a little because we're not really then talking about traditionality. Because throughout most of the book, he's been talking about tradition and stuff as if it was autonomy where it's just like, here is a wisdom of the ancestors that you must receive because modernity is stupid and they're smarter than you or something. But then he switches mode into this like, oh, and actually no, what I mean is autonomy, where you're dy dynamically and adaptively adjusting your cultural practices. And it's like, th th that does sound good, but it's like, is this not actually a little bit different from what you were talking about before? Or is it, am I confused? Yeah, and doesn't this also like apply to the critique of science? Right, where it's like, well, can't we use the scientific traditions to change the tradition traditionally? Like, <laughs> it's like, is isn't isn't that good as well? Um, Absolutely right. Like, why why wouldn't we dynamically adjust science? You know. <laughs> so, I mean, we're we're generally quite fond of autonomy in this in this way, but um, it's not totally clear exactly how it relates to many of the other concepts that have been raised. Um, because he is, is still pinning it down to like particular territories here um, and so on. So it's it's very pl place specific um, and so on. Um, but there is kind of move to um, scales and recursions again, where, you know, he's, he's entertaining like the possibility of like recursive federation of these, these kind of groups. Um, yeah, it's, it's good stuff, right? You know? Um, Got a lot of good stuff like communal logics, you know, like communi communality as a verb, um, communitarian entanglements. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty okay stuff, you know. Um, even if, I don't know, some of the particular framings of like uh, blood and soil kind of territory stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of joking with that, but sort of not really, you know. It's like there's, there is a worrying aspect of this that could be slide into that without too much difficulty, yes. Too place-specific, perhaps, and too much concerned with a particular Volk, you know? Um, there's definitely danger there, um, but it's, it's, a, it's mixed in with a lot of stuff that's, you know, good and, like, resonates with a lot of stuff we've, we've studied so far on the show, you know? 
Yeah, I guess the thing is like it's just when you look at autonomy, like it's it's is all talking about the community, the community, community, but like you know this also can apply to individuals. Like that is one of Maturana and Varela's points, right? That like this applies at various levels. So like. Yeah, like, I'm not saying it is necessarily about, like, quote-unquote individualism, but, like, recognizing that, like, that autonomy needs to exist for individuals within their communities. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, that stuff is, like, partially, it's partially present here, but in a way that's not acknowledged, because, like, um, he leans on, like, communitarian feminism and stuff like that, but, like, I mean, it's... And like depatriarchalization, de- de- and it's like the process of depatriarchalization de- is when some individuals in the collective stand up and say, "No, we're not going to fucking do that anymore," you know. And like if, but if everything is totally like communally, culturally constructed, there's no basis on which for women to say that or to make an objection to their culture, you know. So it's a little bit mixed up, you know. Like, and if yes, yeah. It's it's kind of like um, the idea of, of changing traditions traditionally doesn't really make sense unless you um, have reference to like sort of like smaller groups within the community and then individuals within the community. And, and like in a VSM model, like the the individual you know member of the species, or whatever, is taken seriously as an autopoetic whole. I mean, it, yeah, it's matter and Freya stuff, right? And but the difference is that the the kind of group level above and the like smaller levels below are also taken seriously like it but it's like there's a very funny erasure that happens where it's like okay there's there's all these kind of like autonomous like meta beings that are our collectives right and they they deserve respect and stuff but then uh, and then like the micro biological stuff deserves its, its respect but then the middle layer of like the human individual suddenly is the one that we don't give a shit about you know yes there's a yes. very strange omission you know where um yeah i don't i don't really get it like i feel like it's it feels like a hang-up you know it's it's a kind of anti-humanist or like anti-enlightenment hang-up you know and it's like you you see the same thing in like um various kind of anti-humanist sort of thinkers whatever where like micro intelligence and macro intelligence are taken seriously but meso intelligence at the human level is just absent you know so like the the micro intelligence of like microorganisms is cool and good, and the macro intelligence of markets or whatever is cool and good, but human beings are just dumb animals, you know. Like it's such a <laughs> fucking weird hang up, you know. And yes, I feel like something like that is here, where the kind of micro life of bacteria and plants and shit like that is respected, the macro life of the community is respected, but the individuals are kind of left out of it, like as, as dumb automata, um, which, which then it, it, it clangs with the feminism because like in order for women to rebel against men, they have to not be automatons, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. There's an incoherence here that is weird. Yes, exactly. Like, it, it, like the, like feminism can't just be like a cultural tradition that exists outside of the context of like, the actual like um question of like social and bodily autonomy for individuals right mm-hmm. yeah totally. 
I mean, yeah. we can observe that all throughout human history and even, like, among animals, you know? Like, I mean, you, you look at, um, you know, a, a troop of chimpanzees or whatever in which, like, eventually the the females just rise up and beat the shit out of the fucking, like, dominating, dominating males and kill them off and then establish a, you know, nice feminist chimpanzee society or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's that's politics, right? And that's that's very much them as organisms doing that. It's not just a cultural thing. Like, they're they're designing their their way of life, you know, and it's like, if, if you don't recognize the individual as an actual component in this, like, multi-layered dialectical kind of system, then there's no real way you can insist on these things ever changing. What else we got? Um, yeah, I guess, so is this like the last actual chapter then? Well, it's, it's the one before the conclusion. Um, yeah, they go through, um, there's like a theory section here uh, where like they're describing sort of uh, design principles for autonomy um, that are coming from like a sort of variety of different um, uh, like formulation processes. Uh, and then they get, they get into some sort of like case study stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I found the case study thing kind of dragged on a bit. Um, it was, it was interesting to kind of see this, um, the, this, the story of the, the Cocker Valley, the Cocker River Valley was like, it, it's, it's very interesting, right? Like it's this kind of colonized space where like, um, and it's, it's, it's heavy on plantations, right? Like there's this very, like it's that ontological occupation that he's been talking about. Um, and then the kind of proposal or the hypothesis then, it's like whatever, you get gathering a co-design team and creating a design space with which the collaborative design team can co-evolve, you know, getting, getting the residents involved in talking out possible futures and stuff, a dialogic space and things. And like, in some ways it, it was kind of impressive, but in others it's it seems limited by the imagination of the design profession that like everything's a meeting and everything's a little, everything's a dialogue, you know, it's, it, mm. it's always getting, getting heads together around the table to discourse something is the way everything happens. And I don't know, to be a crude Marxist about it, the, 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 um, the prospect of like getting a bunch of AK-47s and like taking them to wherever the guy who owns the plantation lives um, never really comes up as a way of like... It, yeah, it's not part of the design process. Uh, no, even though that's probably the most effective way to install your new new ontology <laughs> that you're going to design. Um, so it's, it's a little bit woolly yeah, on like how to make any kind of traction on it, you know? If everything's a workshop, you know, it's like something has to come after the workshops and maybe it's just, maybe it's just the proposal here is very provisional of just like how to get the workshops going. Um, but I would, I would hope this leads to something like the July days or something, you know? Um, yes, yes, exactly. Rather, rather than leading to an endless succession of workshops. Um, yeah. It, it's like the, um, it's like the, the, this integrity process with beer, right? It's like, like, yeah, like this is useful, but like, Obviously, it's 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 a particular process with a particular use, and um, and and it does kind of like get to that sort of like vague na nature of like quote unquote transitions, right? Like like okay, I mean, you can come up with these sort of like principles and make statements, and it's like like when does the 
design process move from like formulation to enactment and then like reformulation right um yeah yeah it's it's like curiously kind of um stalled and, and like maybe the the generous read there is that this is an artifact of like working class power having been so crushed for so long that it just seems very hard to entertain you know anything in, in writing like that but like maybe that'll change over the next while where it just the, the prospect of like have the prospect of both you know stimulating this kind of discourse among people and then collectively actually acting on it might seem to be more plausible um hopefully soon <laughs> you know fingers crossed <laughs> the uh the coda to this chapter before we get to the next one is this is where they this is where he touches on like what to do if you're a degenerate westerner um <laughs> and it's it's the process it's this you know a recommunalization basically that like in the in the acid bath or its aftermath there's at least some some kind of pregnant possibility of uh rebuilding social relations um yeah i mean which is sort of like the basis for the idea of communism right yeah, I mean that has to be possible, otherwise we're waste, we're wasting our fucking time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. We can sit here and wait for the um for the the glorious revolution to come to our shores from the south, you know, and and liberate us from from hell. <laughs> That's the only option. Because if, if if there's if there's truly nothing to be done about the condition of modernity, then like I I we might as well just check out and fucking play video games until that happens, you know. <laughs> you know. If there's if there's absolutely nothing to be done about our our, our condition now, yes. um, <laughs> which is yeah, just kind of yeah. I mean, obviously we've seen the way that goes, like with um, yeah. Also, like I guess um, that that is the thing. Like we have kind of seen where that goes, and it's like if I don't, there's a way of reading this book that basically says that like if you're not already a Zapatista or somebody doing this territorial struggle in the south. You're basically fucked already, and the only possibility for saving the world actually just comes solely from these places. And if that's the case, we might as well just admit we're fucking doomed, you know, because I, I'm not going to hold my breath for the Zapatistas to suddenly conquer the fucking world, you know. Um, it, it, I, it's like, given the, t given the way the tide of the acid bath moves, it doesn't seem like a solid bet, you know, if, if that's truly the only way this could ever work out. And so, but like, okay, that's ridiculous. So the other conclusion is that like, no, I mean, there's the possibility for, you know, enacting communism actually does exist all across the world and for all people, because it turns out that people are not fundamentally all that different from each other. And uh, we might exist in different contexts and we might have different immediate memories of ways of living. But um, yeah, if it's, I don't know if if the fate of the world really is in the hands of at most a couple of hundred thousand people in the global south, then we're we might as well check check out now. You know, it's fucking over. Like, just call it a day. You know, if that's the case, because um, it's it's not hard to predict where the direction of motion would be in that case. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like it. It really has to be something that can um, expand beyond these like territorial struggles or have other sources of um revolution uh because yeah these territorial struggles are super important and they've been like 
you know, probably one of the only like significant and effective uh, roadblocks in the way of uh, ecological death um, in the last uh, while. Uh, but yeah, obviously, like that's not sufficient to stop the juggernaut. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't mean I don't mean to play them down at all. It's like they're, and it is extremely heartening to see them happen. It's it's heartening to see, especially living in Britain. And I, I think the the Brits just have such like kicked dog syndrome that like they they've completely lost the will to to fight back and the will to live. It's really heartening to see anyone in the world have the will to fucking live, and the will to fight back. But um, if if the book is proposing that that's kind of the only angle that like saving the world can come from, and I think it's, it's just wrong, you know. Um, yeah, um, final chapter, the conclusion. Um, this is where, actually, it, it takes a really interesting move and um, finishes off with a bunch of, like, open questions and problems that, like, the book suggests, um, which is, um, I don't know, it seems like a confident kind of move uh, to to kind of leave this open. I guess it's in that kind of experimental and open-ended um, spirit of the pluriverse, you know? Um, what have we got then? So the first one that comes up is the question of modernity. Um, is there a way out, you know? Because if it turns out that there isn't, then the proposition, I, what, how do they put it? Like, if modernity is ineluctably all we have to go on, then this book's propositions could legitimately be qualified as romantic or utopian and then in parentheses, as they inevitably, inevitably will be by many. So, I don't know, I think it's quite quite nice uh, to put that front and centre as like, yeah, this is kind of an open question, like, you know, it's... Um... There's a couple of other points then of like, we seem to have a hard time imagining the end of modernity. Um, is this where he gets into the thing of like, alternative traditions as well? Do we want, do we want to slot that in here? Because it seems like a reasonable place to put it. Um, that was earlier in the book, actually. Um, yeah, uh, it was just, it was just, uh, talking about how, um, like there could be sort of like alternative modernity or sorry, not alternative modernities, but, uh, alternative, like occidental traditions that could be brought in, um, to produce like this kind of like new non-modern paradigm. So like he talks about like, uh, like pragmatism or Spinoza or Pascal, uh, these kinds of people, um, just to like point out that there may be sources for, um, non-modern movements within the West that are not like, completely contaminated by that uh that all the all the problems of modernity that he describes in this book yeah and um the end of that section then has like um it's 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 a point about like kind of uh civilizational anxiety right that like because we find it hard to imagine the end of this stuff then there's a huge anxiety about what could possibly come next and yeah i mean anxiety about like God, I don't know, is it just going to be, is it going to be so much worse, you know? And, um, it kind of, it kind of rhymes with the, the project of the show, right? That, like, it's kind of necessary to, um, imagine and then work towards as best we can, um, actually maybe better outcomes that, like, the thing that comes after modernity could actually be 
better, you know, than this thing was. Um, we may may not to be may not need to be quite so anxious about it. Yeah, I think um, this is something that like we sort of uh, work on a lot in like future studies and stuff, where it's like you know I think my advisor was saying like the number one thing you have to do in futuring exercises is get people to unlearn their assumptions about the future. It's not, it's, it's like, it's not, it's not, the difficult part is not getting them to come up with alternative futures. It's getting them to unlearn their assumptions about what the future certainly will look like. Yeah. And then, and then, and then they will come forward. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because like, um, like modernity just has this like absolutely hegemonic kind of control over our imaginations. Right. And like, it's really hard to get past that just assumption. It's like, it's either going to be more of the same or or, or oblivion. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the sort of like assumptions of modernity are much weaker now than they were like in the '90s. Like, I feel, I feel like there's they've been destabilized considerably. So, um, I feel like that that statement, like, is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, is more true than if you were to like make that about modernity. Um, it's easier to imagine the end of modernity than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, absolutely right. Um, yeah, that's, that's unfortunately quite true. Um, I, I can imagine all kinds of capitalisms that come after this that are distinctly non-modern. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, again, that, that doesn't mean like we... Sh like we the, the st It's still the same fundamental problem of like, you know imagining past our set assumptions about what the future will be um but uh yeah again i just i just feel like the the block uh behind capitalism is like way stronger uh, because the 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 modern one feels like it's been eroded quite a lot at this point yeah definitely and um i think it's borrowing a point from much later in the chapter towards the end but like with the, the kind of seeming like pretty strong rightward turn in a lot of politics recently, um, it's possible we'll, we'll get a post-modernity, you know, but it'll make it'll make modernity look fucking quaint and, and harmless by comparison. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, I feel like, you know, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade feels like it's a, a, a post postmodern turn not in the sense of postmodernism in like the you know 1970s sense but in the sense of like oh like this is a um this feels like something that should not happen according to the narrative of modernism yeah um, maybe to to butcher Latour, it's like we've never been modern, but we'll miss it when it's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, it's like you know, um, yeah. Just that um, assertion of like very like pig-headed, ignorant patriarchal control over people's bodies um, seems to like fly in the face of that idea of like ever intensifying individualism. Um, and not in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the, the dark undercurrent of some of the book, right? That like you gotta you gotta wonder, right? Like that, um, you know, there's a there's a potentially like blackpilling kind of read of it where it's like maybe the pluriverse isn't all that plural, you know, uh, in many ways. That like the kind of post 
the after modernity, after like rationalism, after individualism kind of breakdown really could be quite nightmarish. Um, and especially like, I mean, if, if you have this like just kind of patchwork of individual like micro communities that like all kind of t look after themselves or whatever, it's like, what's the plan for preventing just outright sex-based domination from just taking over again? And like, I have this weird feeling that for the author, there might not even be an answer to that or that like, I don't know, maybe that's okay if we just get rid of modernity, like the juice might be worth the squeeze, you know? Yeah, like if we could save like biodiversity on Earth, it would be it would be uh, worth it to return to patriarchal domination. Which uh, you know is is like a kind of Ted Kaczynski thing, but without the bombs. And I'm, I'm not sure if that makes me respect it more or less. You know. <laughs> yeah, like I I I think like it's um it's it's something that like he kind of tacitly. Or I mean, pretty pretty explicitly states in the book where he's just like you know, but like give you know if you give me a choice between tradition and modernity, I'm gonna pick tradition because it's less harmful than modernity is. Yeah, what's what's the quote again? It's like that the um, the pathologies of tradition are less lethal than the pathologies of modernity, and like that's sketchy as shit, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll see if I can find the exact quote here again. We, we had it a while ago, didn't we? It was at the back of one of the chapters. Uh, I've got it on page... It's at the end of chapter three. It's like the end of the second last paragraph. So the quote is... Um, and he, he's quoting someone else here, but the quote goes, The pathology of relatedness has already become less dangerous than the pathology of unrelatedness. And then ending that quote... To paraphrase, the pathologies of modernity have already proven to be more lethal than the pathologies of traditions, ecologically at least. This seems an incontrovertible statement. So yeah, it's like, it's pretty hard in on like uh, the juice being worth the squeeze, you know? Which, um, it then leaves me to kind of doubt the commitment to the feminist stuff that's quoted in the book, you know? Because we've, we've highlighted a lot of the problems of the interface between those two sets of concepts and like, yeah, yeah, I think like um, it it's it's definitely concerning because it's like yeah, you could say like well, the traditions he's pointing to are are sort of like you know matrilineal and and feminist, um, but like I don't know, it, it also seems to be presented in a kind of like universalizing statement of like you know like if you give me the choice, this is the one I'm going to pick mm -hmm. also, because I value life mm -hmm. over freedom. Also, like, I mean, if you were if you were to commit to like universal emancipation for women, wouldn't that be a universal, which this guy hates, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty weird. Um, let's see if any of these other open questions are interesting. I guess the the, the next one is rationality, rationality, techno science, and the real. It's a pretty. I guess it's kind of um you know wondering if like a pluralistic science is possible. Um, and, and wanting to shift the attitude towards the real so that, like, we have a more kind of multifaceted understanding of reality. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, obviously it is. Like, obviously it's possible that, to have a pluralistic science because science is, as a matter of necessity, pluralistic. Like, in the sense that subatomic physics and biology are never going to perfectly line up. Right, like they just they just won't. Like this is a point that's made by Neurath and talking about unity of science is like the unity of science does not mean 
a hierarchy of sciences in which every like greater uh, science uh, swallows every lesser science. Um, it's actually more that you have these like semi-incompatible sciences that correspond with each other and work together to, to the degree that they're capable of. Um, but there, there's just, there's so much variety in the world that science can't help but be pluralistic in that sense, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And there's, there's also a thing where, like, um, the way science is framed in this book, and it's just occurring to me now, but, like, the way it's framed, is it's, it's talked about as a power structure, but it's the, the way that the aspect of science where, um, like, maybe, like, okay, a bunch of scientists are hired by some people to do particular things, right? Like, I mean, they're hired by oil companies to go and investigate this stuff or whatever. But in doing so, they're brought into contact with a kind of undeniable outside reel that is, that then impinges on them and then they, they like, which means that, like, science is not entirely at the behest of the power people, you know, the money people. So, I mean, in fact, a lot of the reason why this book could be written about, you know, the impending climate apocalypse is precisely because of scientific investigation into that stuff, which, you know, even people on the payroll of oil companies couldn't not say that this is happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, if, if money was, um, uh, like, strongly, or, or sorry, like, uh, like, like monocausally determinative of scientific outcomes, we would not be in a situation where IPCC reports would be written saying that like there is like a over ninety percent consensus that like we are on the verge of civilizational collapse for for reasons of climate change, right? Like that just wouldn't happen. <laughs> so that there's an actually existing plurality of like views and stuff in science that just isn't isn't accounted for here, like isn't isn't permitted, you know, as part of the model. It's very, um, it's very Foucauldian or whatever, where science is just this, like, demonic fucking presence that, like, totalizes everything and, like, you, there's there's no way out of it. It's a, it's an all-consuming surveillance system or whatever. Um, yeah, and I mean, this isn't to, like, downplay the many, many abuses that have been done in the name of science um, and in, in, in uh, the pursuit of science. Uh, it's just to say, like... Like, is it conceivable that we could have pluralistic science? Like, the answer to that is obviously yes, it is conceivable. Um, it's also conceivable that we could have uh, non-pluralistic science, which was really bad science, where it's like, oh, if you're... If your scientific research doesn't fit into the dominant paradigm, then you just lose your job or you get shot or whatever. Um, uh, like, that's also definitely conceivable, but you know, the answer to the question in the book is clearly yes. Mm -hmm. uh, next bit is, do traditional communities design toward a practice of uh, dishonor? Which is parenthesized as designing dreaming. It, it's this kind of question of like, yeah, I mean, does the concept of design apply to what traditional communities do? Um, and I think ultimately, yes, like that there's, even if it's not conceptualized as design, a lot of these communities, I mean, even just like in the anthropological kind of record, like plenty of like human societies have had really conspicuous like mechanisms to prevent the emergence of tyrannies as best as they could. And like a lot of stuff that seems really deliberate and not just kind of like um, totally accidental. So, and also like, 
people forever have like altered their environment and like designed things and moved things around to suit them. So um, I think it's it's certainly the case that the concept of design applies even if it's not like a professionalized thing that they do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, you'd have to be coming from like a very peculiar point of view to uh, say that like no, they they categorically do not do design, right? Like you'd have to be either like extremely racist or Eurocentric or like, you know, just like some trad calf weirdo who's like, oh, like all innovation is like a violation of God's dominion or something like that, you know? <laughs> it's like <laughs> That kinda that kind of stuff sort of is here though in, in like the earliest part of this section where it's this um the stuff that reminds me so much of the like the just horseshit anthropology you'd get out of like Margaret Mead and that kind of stuff where it's like oh these these people don't cognize their world at all they simply live directly and in, in immediate contact with with nature and stuff like that and it's like they're not fucking aliens they're human beings for god's sake you know what I yes mean? yeah um, yeah and like for, for for listeners who aren't familiar, like I mean, in, in the nineteen twenties or so, Margaret Mead uh, went off to Samoa and spent a little while there, and then wrote this absolutely insane kind of tract about like reporting things that like uh, that the Samoans they don't know they, like they don't know grief, you know, or like the attachment of the mother and child, or like sexual assault is not a thing there, and all these kind of just insane kind of like inversions of of things and like. And then basically, like, it, it was actually a like, hugely widely consumed sort of thing and hugely popular throughout the 20th century and hugely influential. But then other anthropologists would go to Samoa because Samoa is not fucking Mars. It's just a place you can go to and talk to people. And they just, like, found that none of it was true. Like, it's 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 just hogwash. But it was, it was so popular as this kind of, like... And it was very influential in this kind of notion of, like, that human cultures can vary, like, infinitely. That, like, there's... There, there are, it's possible that there would be cultures in which even the basic, the most basic aspects of humanity are either absent or are present in totally different ways. Yeah, it, it was like, to, in order to argue against, like, uh, biologically based, uh, like, racist arguments, um, Mead basically, like, fabricated this entire study um, to argue in favor of radical cultural relativism. Um, and it ends up being kind of weirdly racist in its own right, because you're claiming that these people are basically not human. Like, you know, like when when their children die, they simply smile wistfully and wander off into the meadows. You know, this, this fucking nonsense, you know? Um, yes, yes. Like, that's bizarre, right? Like, um, but so some of that stuff is here, but then it's like kind of argued against that, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's my my. It was a fucking blood pressure like roller coaster to read some of these sections because I was just like, <laughs> I was going kind of nuts. Um, what we got then? We got um, back to the pluriverse, um, political ontology. Um, there's an interesting bit here about like um, political ontology with these like partially connected worlds, and the kind of um, I guess the way that these different worlds interface with each other, and like the way that these like sub subaltern uh, cultures have to interface with the main sort of culture. Um, but then th there's a kind of interesting bit that I kind of want to read out because, like, it it gets to something that might be a huge problem, right? That, like, um, so quoting here, there is, for instance, much in Andean indigenous worlds 
that does not abide by the divide between humans and non-humans, even if the divide is also present in many of their practices. The question thus arises of how to understand worlds that, are cl that clearly live partly outside of the separation between nature and humanity, but who also live with it, ignore it, are affected by it, utilize it strategically, and reject it all at the same time. So, I think that that, that, is, that is an important point, but like, it, I couldn't help but feel that like there was something here in a kind of admission that the whole way that like there's this big claim of like oh and like non-separation from nature and like these these radically non-modern ways of being might be wildly overstated in comparison to the actual practices of living and to, so much so that like we, we had that thing earlier about like the narrative layer of ontology that you know i don't know whenever westerners talk about their fucking like narrative layer of their ontology i take it with a huge pinch of salt for good reason and what, what's kind of being said here is that when it comes to Andean indigenous worlds, you probably should take it with a big pinch of salt too. But if that's the case, I kind of wonder how much the book might just fall apart if, if those differences are not as severe as they're strenuously made out to be. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, the reality uh, seems to be much more complex um in terms of like the ways that um non-dual thinking like is and is not effective in people's uh everyday practices um and 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 so the this sort of like assertion that this is like yeah like categorically determinative um cultural norm uh seems like yeah obviously quite questionable um and there's there's maybe a couple of ways to read it, right? Like my my kind of objection there that like it's possible that like the the claims to non-dualistic living are aspirational uh, more so than they're actually practically enacted, and that could be because of maybe the aspiration is just much more than anyone's capable of living, or they live in very close proximity to capitalist social relations and have to interface with that. Um, there's also the like small possibility that it takes the form of a kind of ideological smokescreen in much the same way as any narrative does, um, which is a very uncharitable read, but I, I can't not entertain it, you know what I mean? Uh, um, I would like it to not be the case, but I gotta get my suspicions going as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I come down like that, yeah, the ways that on the side of the the fact that like the ways that people relate to these beliefs are quite complicated, um, but it doesn't mean that they aren't effective at all. Um, and they can be quite important in the way pe uh, people do things. It's just, um, they're not, yeah, they're not like followed with other consistency, just like any other social norms. <laughs> so I, I mean, uh, I think that, uh, you know, yeah, humans are ultimately human beings. And, um, that is true, whatever, uh, part of the world you go to. Um, but at the same time, I think that like, you know, in the same way that our cultural norms can be, can encourage uh, wanton destruction of the world around us. Um, other norms can uh, act as, uh, like, can, like, uh, shape behavior in, in other ways. It's just they're not going to do it 
like consistently in every situation because people have all kinds of different priorities. People can do things in bad faith. They can be hypocrites. They can pay lip service to stuff. Like, I mean, this is all things that people in any culture can do. Right. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it just, it just doesn't mean that like, you know, the cultural dimension, uh, doesn't have like any, uh, value as a source of acting um, to prevent this like capitalist based ego side that we're going through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can, I can definitely agree with that. Um, what else we got here? Um, there's a bit on design with and without futures, um, which I guess kind of calls into question even the concept of future. Is, is future not like a modern concept? Um, to which I say, yeah, sure, but like, who gives a shit? That's <laughs> fine. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> like, kind of, but also no, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you can have like cyclical and linear conceptions of time, right? And it doesn't mean that like people who exist under a cyclical conception of time have no concept of a future. It just it's not the same kind of thing as like um the kind of future that's implied by like a 10-year plan <laughs> yeah i guess it's like the the whenever this kind of thing comes up right it's like oh but you know isn't the does it even make sense to apply the concept of future and it's like yeah it still fucking does come on you know it's like um these people aren't aliens you know it's like um and also, like, if, if, if they're worried about their fucking forest being cut down and burnt and, like, they'll have to, you know, they'll all die. And it's like, that's an anxiety about the future. <laughs> like, it's like, the, the yeah, as you said, like, even within, like, notions of cyclical time, it's like not, it, it's not the made thing where these people somehow just exist in a single moment or whatever, you know, it's like, it, it, it's... It, it, the, the anxiety around applying the concept future to, to these kind of cultures just seems, it seems like a weird, like, academic hang-up, more so than, like, what you would get if you actually asked them, like, hey, why are you so worried about not having food? Because there's no future, don't you remember? You know, it's not, nothing's going to matter tomorrow, you know? Yes. So, like, for example, uh, you know, uh, Buddhism has a comes from sort of like that Vedic tradition that has like a cyclical concept of time. But if you look at like um, the example of uh, like uh, this place in, in Japan and uh, Uji uh, called Byodoin um, or the quote unquote temple of equality. Um, uh, it was just to read the little Wikipedia description uh, it was originally built in 998 in the Heian period as a rural villa of high-ranking courtier Minamoto no Shige Nobu, uh, minister of the left. After he died, one of the most powerful members of the Fujiwara clan, Fujiwara no Michinaga, purchased the property from the courtier's widow. The villa was made into a Buddhist temple by his son Fujiwara no Yorimichi in 1052. Um... So in East Asian Buddhism, there is the three ages of Buddhism, which are three divisions of time following Buddha's passing. The Mapo, which is also translated as the age of Dharma decline, is the degenerate third age of Buddhism, also known as the latter day of the law. It was widely believed that the year 1052 marked the first year of the beginning of the end of the world. 
This theory captured the heart of many aristocrats and monks, which as a result, people became more devout in Buddhism and believed in the ideology of the Buddhist pure land. Uh, and so basically they turned this, this, uh, this villa into a Buddhist bomb shelter um, for the Buddha apocalypse. Uh, and, and this is all just to say that like they not only had a concept of the future, they had like a structure of time uh, according to like uh, like sort of a Buddhist understanding of the world. Um, and they even had like a particular date where this is like this is when it, shit's gonna go down, right? Mm-hmm. So like they have a more structured future than we do, you know. <laughs> Like, that's a lot of future. I mean, it's it's similar to, like, you know, people saying, like, oh, by this date, we'll be over 1.5 degrees Celsius, et cetera, et cetera. Like, that kind of understanding of the future. But it's all just to say, like, yes, they had an understanding of the future. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't, like, you know, a kind of uh, future that was oriented around the idea of, like, shaping the world to human desires. Uh, but doesn't mean it wasn't a future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, right? Because, I mean, they're not, they're not idiot, idiots, you know? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> they had calendars, they had, yeah, all kinds of uh, ideological constructs. And, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's just kind of a silly question. It is. I mean, how much violence does it do to people to just accuse them of not even having a concept of time? <laughs> like, for God's sake, come on, people, <laughs> you know? I promise you they're not aliens. They're actually human beings, you know? Um, yeah, and it's like it's not to say that like living with a cyclical concept of time versus a linear concept of time has no effect on the way you live. But it, it's a separate question to whether people have a concept of the future or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a little bit later in that section, there's, a, I think, quite an interesting point that like... Um, uh, it's kind of getting towards like having some kind of hope through the Anthropocene, um, but there's a really interesting thing there that like we kind of we kind of talk a lot about like the complexity of the current system, but then like contrast that with the brutal simplicity of its results. Like in many ways, this is not a complex society. This is an extraordinarily simple machine <laughs> um, that does one thing and one thing only, and it's like the, it gets to that like the flattening, the material flattening that it does. In its operations and it's like yeah it's, it's an interesting reframing right like that in in some ways we definitely think of like oh this is a complex society and it's becoming ever more complex but it seems to be breaking down and kind of honing in on ever more repetitive and simple operations um you can you could describe it as an extraordinarily complex uh, extraordinarily simple society actually yes that's right that's right yeah um if you like abstract away from kind of like the bureaucratic and infrastructural um elements that allow it to operate at a global scale um and just look at the way it's organized and what it does it's a very simple society yes that it it, it reminds me of like um i'm sure i'm gonna butcher this because i I kind of don't exactly have the physics background, but like um, a kind of definition for entropy as have like high entropy having huge numbers of internal states that are not like externally perceivable, you know? So it's like, like a box of sand 
is a very high entropy because there's a colossal number of internal configurations, but none of them are like distinguishable from each other externally. And you kind of get that with this, that like there's a gargantuan like administrative and bureaucratic bloat in the middle. But it's very hard to tell what the fuck it does <laughs> in terms of its output, you know? Its output is absolutely monotonous in the same way that like looking at a box of sand is quite monotonous regardless of the detail of the configuration internally. So maybe we're getting more of that like high entropy system <laughs> which is on the verge of collapse, you know? Um, uh, there's an open question then about the university. Um, yeah, I don't know. Will, will the university be redeemed? Hard to say. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like it's really not the most important question these days, but um, uh, my answer to that, will the university be redeemed, I think would be just like, like, hopefully, but also like, probably in highly uneven ways, you know, like it's, it's like there'll probably be things you could point to in either direction of like, you know, did the university get shit together? It's like, well, yeah, like, you know, there's this whole like change in perspective on ontology and modernity and it, it taught it to all these different people and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's still a paid sessional lectures, poverty wages to do it. Um, <laughs> like, or you know, it, it, it at the same time it did that, it was still like educating business school graduates to just go and be an absolute parasite on society, right? So, like, it, it, I feel like the university is just like you described, kind of like as an inst as a global institution is just like highly entropic. <laughs> Like it, it's it's not to say like oh it's complicated or the university is a land of contrast it's more just like you know like even if parts of it change for the better there's still going to be like some fucker in oxford who's doing nothing other than like studying like lists of land I don't know, like lists of uh, land owned by some random noble in like 1052 while the world burns down around them, right? Like, or, 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 you know, even worse, they'll do, yeah, it'll still have like people going to business school, right? Like, I mean, hopefully with the revolution, we'll get rid of that, but. <laughs> It'll be the first thing to fucking go is the universities. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> like, like the uh, the MBA programs will definitely be cut. Um, it's, it's they're like empirically shown to provide no value to anyone. <laughs> so I don't think we need those anymore. <laughs> Counter value. I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of taking after Derek here, but I have a weird feeling we might see just like a total collapse of the education system, like from K through twelve all the way up through the universities, like pretty soon, because it's just like everything seems to be falling apart, and like that that's destabilizing in a big way. Yeah, but like at the same time, you know, kind of like like I feel like these things will have kind of like a zombie existence that will like carry on in some places. Like it, 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 it's they're too much a part of the system and its legitimation. Yeah. Like pro well, I mean, also just like the institutional weight of these things is really important. So like, I just feel like it's 
like maybe as this like global system of accreditation, the whole thing is going to collapse like pretty damn soon. But like, I feel like there will be universities that will like limp along here and there, uh, regardless. Um, so yeah. And, and, and will they, will they do things for the good? Yeah, probably some things, but will it, will it be redeemed? I don't know. (laughs) That brings me to one of the last points in the book, actually, it's pretty close to the end. Like, um, he's talking about like, uh, Thomas Berry's, uh, quoting, uh, four institutional formations responsible for unsustainability. And those four are governments, universities, organized religions, and corporations. Um, he points out, like, okay, it's clear that the corporations have gained the upper hand, but then in the next paragraph he says, quoting, There is an imperative need to fight over governments, universities, and spiritualities by reimagining them through the lens of relationality. And it's like, I don't know, like, universities? Really? You know, like, spiritualities and universities are two of the big terms there, and the third one is governments. But not challenging capital, you know? It's a fucking weird conclusion that, like, we need to do a long march through the institutions and through fucking religion or something to, like, save the world. And it's like, no, we need to go and fucking just demolish capital, you know? Ah, what a weird way to finish. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like it, it kind of falls from, like, that weird, like, idealism, right? Like, this, like, well, this is primarily, like, a ideological and spiritual problem, so I guess it kind of makes sense that you, if you believe that, that you'd be like, well, of course we need to change the universities. Uh, yeah, but, but can you imagine this project, right, where you go do the, um, the march through these institutions while they fucking crumble? You know, while, while the stakes are, the stakes are as high as they've ever been, right? Like, this is the, the Hail Mary pass to save the fucking world. And, and you're... Yeah, this is... Yeah, we must change the universities. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're trying to get tenure at CMU while the fucking, like, forest outside the window is on, is in, on flames, you know? And it's like... Well, yeah, and I know plenty of academics who recognize, like, the absurdity of the situation, right? Like, where it's like... Yeah, like, teaching about this stuff is valuable, but, like, does following a tenure track really make any sense at this point in time? <laughs> like, is, 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 like, being in the academic rat race valuable to anyone right now, other than just, like, me and the perpetuation of the institution? Not really. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think even among academics, like, it's, it's clear that, like, Yes, there is some value to being in an educational institution and, um, you know, teaching useful ontological information, scientific information, etc. Uh, but the established structure of academia is very tangential to those benefits. Um, because, like, you know, th- there's sort of, like, a time horizon implied by that and a normality implied by that that, like, clearly do not exist anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a strange note to end on, I guess. Well, it's not exactly the end. I mean, the, the last bit is, like, um, with this kind of w- wave of reaction that we've been seeing, which was evident even in 2017. Um, I don't know, mo- modernity might look like a quaint and harmless dream in comparison to what comes next, so... Who knows? Um, 
which I guess is fair. <laughs> the, the, the scales seem to have tipped even more in that kind of direction uh, since then. Um, so we, we might yet very, pretty soon see an end to modernity, but not an end to capitalism. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Because, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's like, well, capitalism, you know, to a large extent engendered modernity. Like, I don't think that it requires modernity to exist because, we, like, you can have, yeah, all kinds of weird post-modernities that are still capitalist. Um, or, I mean, shit, and stuff that we've already got, like, I mean, Saudi Arabia, you know, like a distinctly non-modern kind of um, mode of capital accumulation that is, eh, I mean, uh, it, it being based on purely on this extractive kind of resource thing puts it on a different footing, but, you know, it's mechanically basically functions, you know, it's without, without any of the trappings of uh, this degenerate Western modern lifestyle, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, except for all of the supercars and alcohol and all the other things that people aren't supposed yeah. to have. <laughs> they do have, they do have some of that. Yeah. I guess there's no, there's no resisting, <laughs> there's no resisting the acid bath in the end. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it like they found that like, like what was it when they, when they went to kill Osama bin Laden and they found that like he had like a PS2 and he was like gaming or something <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. it's like very, <laughs> you can't escape. <laughs> Well, like that's that's also like it's it's a kind of mark on the book, right? Like that even even if the most ardent and fucking like devoted traditionalists and reactionaries can't manage to get this shit together, then what's what's the hope of this whole embrace tradition shit working? You know, it's not, it's not gonna right. Like the acid bath gets you one way or the other. Right? Like it's, it just seems like a not. I don't know. If, if even the most committed can't fucking stick it out in that way, then yeah. It's, it's, what what hope is there for that as a strategy you know and and yeah like you mentioned the march three institutions and it's like obviously that didn't work so um uh, let's not do that again please um it's really a waste of time yeah so i mean i end up being kind of ambivalent on the book i was a little warmer on it as i was skimming at this time but then it's just it's a, it's such a weird dizzying book because there's there's a fair bit to like about it but then it's mixed in with like the peculiar hang-ups of the author in a way that doesn't exactly gel, you know? And like, the, um, I think, I can, I can also kind of half imagine taking a lot of the components of it and just reconfiguring them and throwing away some of the sillier stuff and ending up with something quite solid, but like, or, or like a slightly different author with, you know, less of the kind of the, the juice is worth the squeeze kind of mentality leading to a better read, you know? It's, uh, I think, it's, it's also, it's hard to imagine what the praxis is from that, that like, I, I think you could probably take, take plenty of inspiration from some parts of the book and import them into the, like, marxist Berean revolutionary framework or whatever. But I think starting from the Pluriverse framework and then trying to glom in other components would would be much less effective. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a very useful way to go. Because um, it's, again, it's it's kind of like there's specific like pedagogical things or design things in here that are quite good, quite interesting. Uh, but the overall point of view seems a bit uh, messed up. Just a little bit crazy in some ways. Um, any other parting thoughts on this one? I think it is ironic that, yeah, it, it's a book about design, but 
as you said, like it's not especially well designed itself. <laughs> like in terms of like uh, being easy to follow and 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 read and and uh, understand what the author's point is at any given point in the book. So, yeah, it, it, it's just um, kind of a do as I say, not as I do sort of thing. Uh, but I guess you know a lot of the design principles that were in here didn't really have to do with like. Um, legibility or accessibility or any of those other kinds of design principles. It was all about the ontological stuff, which is um, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the um, it's it's yeah. If we go back to our X Y problem, like if we if we sort of drop the second term, like the, um, the sort of misdirect, and we just focus back on, so we, we drop the traditionalism stuff and do actually focus on spirituality and focus on like meaningfully changing the way we our stance on the world and like how we go about understanding ourselves and our place in the world. I think it's all, that's, yeah, it's not terribly objectionable, but it's all, it's a lot of stuff we found in Pickering and beer and stuff anyway. Like them. Yeah. Some of, some of the same sources, right. But like coming to different conclusions or having a different point of view. So yeah, there's plenty, plenty of resonance in there. Um, I just got some side eye for, a fair bit of the author's apparent like stance on things um and i i, I would prefer to be wrong in that interpretation but i don't know yeah um i i guess uh i, th I think that's like probably the appropriate um perspective to take with any of this stuff uh you know is is a certain degree of caution um that like actually there's a kind of a there, there may be like a, a sort of like fashy background to this. Um, and even if it's not the author's intention, maybe that's the way it'll be taken up. Uh, it also just like, it, if you play with Heidegger, you're going to get burned in that kind of regard, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's too close to that kind of stuff, you know, from its beginning stance, you know, um, anyway. Yeah. So, um, Interesting read, one we we definitely struggled with, uh, but um, I think was interesting to bring in just because it's so close to the sort of like teaching work I've been doing recently. Um, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll move on from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, listeners, for coming along with us. Uh, very much appreciated. Um, while you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on the web at generalintellectunit.net. We're on all the podcast apps, so subscribe if you haven't done so already. Um, maybe tell your friends as well if you think there's folks that would enjoy this kind of um, this kind of show. Um, if you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit, um, throw us a couple of bucks a month. You can help support the show and keep the lights on, uh, pay for books. Uh, and... You can also get access to our community Discord where we hang out and chat about this kind of stuff. Um, it's a nice, gentle little community, you know. Yeah, they're good folks. The You should also check out emancipation.network uh, because this show is part of that network. Um, it's a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Um, there's some really great shows on there. Um, we've got Mortal Science, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, From Alpha to Omega, and us. Is that it? Yeah, that's all of them. Yeah, I don't know. What else we got? Um, have I forgotten anything? I don't think so. I think that's it. And uh, yeah, just, um, I don't know. Hang, hang in there, everybody, in this uh, 
this strange pluriverse that we are currently inhabiting. Yeah, keep it plural, <laughs> you know? Keep it plural. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.